Well, good morning. Please take your copy of God's Word, and as Carlos said, we'll be in Psalm 72 this morning. We have spent the past weeks and months steeped in ancient texts, some 2,000 years old, some 2,500 years old, some even older than that, 3,000 years old, and we have been in those texts. And we've had to learn about peoples and places and names that are unfamiliar to us. We've studied customs that differ greatly from our own. And at times it seems we've even ventured into some strange planet as we have read about woe oracles and nations that don't exist anymore and impending judgments. Yet it's all necessary for us to begin to plumb the depths of the sacred scriptures that we put that work in, that we do that task. Well, this morning, we're going to again examine another very old text dating back some 3,000 years. But instead of describing for us an ancient king or an ancient nation, we are going to be thrust forward in time to the final kingdom on earth, the very last kingdom that is yet to come. With prophetic eyes, the psalmist, he'll peel back this curtain of time and he'll allow us just a peek, just a mere glimpse of this final kingdom. And his purpose for this is to give us hope in the midst of the days that we now live. And I'm sure that you've all heard the news by now that Queen Elizabeth II died after more than 70 years she sat on the throne and her eldest son, King Charles III, when he ascended and, and returned, the people, the British people began singing their anthem, God Save the King. And so I was interested in this and I began looking up some of the, the prayers for the new king and I wanted to see what they said. And they were praying for the new king to bless his reign and the life of the nation that they would have truth and justice, harmony and fairness. And you see, that was a little interesting to me because weeks before, we had decided that this morning I would be preaching on Psalm 72, which is a royal psalm. It is a psalm that was probably written for the coronation of King Solomon when he ascended to the throne following his father David. And so I thought, wow, how interesting is this? I'm seeing this coronation prayer in Psalm 72. And at the same time, the world now is looking at, at, at the coronation of a new king. And I wonder what the differences are. I wonder what they might say for or wish for or pray for King Charles III. But I was even more interested in that. And so I went back in time and I started looking up recorded coronation prayers dating back to the 1500s. And I was looking through them and I was wondering what they pray for. What do they ask? And so I, I kind of found some common themes. They pray for that the God would defend and protect them and deliver them from their enemies. They pray for peace. They pray for abundance and prosperity. They pray for wisdom. They even pray that the new monarch would punish evil that they would not bear the sword in vain. They prayed that the new monarch would defend the weak, protect the righteous, that the new monarch would live virtuously and even increase in virtue, that they would have a devotion to God and even a fear of God. They prayed for salvation for their monarchs and for health and even for the blessing of children and for happiness. And I was glad to see so many themes drawn from Scripture as over the centuries, mainly a Christian people prayed for their new kings and their queens. And I was even glad to see on one website when they were listing the different coronation prayers, they included Psalm 72 in that list. But at the same time that our news cycle is nearly dominated by the death of Elizabeth, this day in American history is also a time of remembrance, September 11th, 2001. The date that terrorists swooped in 
to take the lives of thousands of our fellow Americans. And I remember that day. And I remember the pit in my stomach that I felt knowing that I could do nothing. And I was thinking only if God would grant us a few hours to go back in time that we could somehow defend against this, somehow protect ourselves and stop this horrific event. But Psalm 72 reminds me, I don't want to go back in time. I'm longing to go forward in time to the final kingdom and experience real peace, to experience real justice and true righteousness. Psalm 72 does that for us. It's what we call a royal psalm. What does that mean, you ask? Well, about 100 years ago or so, theologians began to categorize the psalms by their content. So we call this the genre. What is the genre of the psalm? And the first categorization was done by a a man named Herman Kunkel, who said that basically you could divide the psalms into hymns, communal laments, individual laments, royal individual songs, and songs of thanksgiving. Well, his idea caught on about looking at the content of psalms. And so there, are, there is no single list because people have different opinions, but we generally see psalms of, of lament, psalms of praise, uh, which glorify God and the works he has done, hymn psalms, which are joyful songs from the people celebrating the goodness of God. And then there are royal psalms. There are about 10 of them in Scripture. And these are about kings or depicting God as king. And that's what we have this morning. So what is a royal psalm? It's a psalm whose main theme is about the kingship or about the Judean monarchy. We can get a little bit more specific and say that they're psalms that deal with the spiritual roles of the king in the worship of Yahweh. And sometimes they present the ideal king or the Messiah who is to come. And this one we see at the very beginning. It says it's a song of Solomon. Now, in the the rest of the Psalms, when it says of someone, that's who wrote it. Now, some people have looked at this and say, well, that could be translated for Solomon, but uh, I'm going to stick with it. It's a psalm that was written by Solomon. Could have been based off the prayers of his father David, but this was a psalm written by him. And it possibly used at his very coronation. And it speaks of the royal son, which certainly refers to Solomon. But as we're going to see, this psalm glides kind of past the coronation and into prophecy and into the future. And it begins to give us a description of David's greater son, Jesus, the Messiah. A coronation prayer turns into prophecy. What begins as a description of the present kingdom looks forward to the final kingdom. Though Solomon did not end well in his reign, he did begin well. We have a description of Solomon in his early years in 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon was about 20 years old when he became king. And listen to what the scripture says of Solomon. It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was a great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God asked, and uh, God said, Ask what I shall give to you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, uh, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept him from this great, uh, kept him this great and steadfast love that you've given uh, a son to to sit on the throne one day. And now, O Lord, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I'm but a little child, 20 years old. He said, I do not know how to go in or come out. And he said, and your servant is in the midst of a people who uh, you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So this is what he asked. He's fine. So God, in a dream, appears to him and asks him, what, what, what should I give to you, new king? What would you ask of me? And here's his answer. After that, that great introduction there, he says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern the people, 
that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? You see, one of the primary tasks of kings were to be judges. Cases and and, and, uh, disputes would be brought before the king, and the king would have to make the decision. The king would have to decide between the two or more. And so, so Solomon is asking for wisdom to be able to do that job, to be the judge that he's called to be. He wants to be a good judge in that. And this pleased God. And in fact, God is so pleased, he says, behold, I, I give you a wise and discerning mind uh, so that none is like that, but I also give what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And then he finishes, and if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God is pleased with Solomon. He is pleased that he has asked of him for wisdom in judging his people. That's a great request. And God grants it to him and says, not only will I make you very wise, but I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you some fame and some prosperity like no one of your time will have. However, things didn't end well. I don't know if you noticed at the beginning of that passage as I read, it says that he was walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So he wasn't making offerings and sacrifices where he was supposed to, but at the high places. And the high places were these altars or uh, worship centers that would stand up and often they'd be on high places. They would go to mountaintops to be close to God and they would build something to worship God there. And that's what he was doing. But now Solomon, it says, loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh from Egypt, a Moabite, an Ammonite, an Edomite, a Sidian, a Sidonian, and a Hittite woman uh, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, said, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will ter- turn away your heart after their gods. So God says, don't marry foreign people because they worship foreign gods and they will draw you away from the worship of Yahweh. And this is what Solomon did. And he was drawn away by that. And it says, Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. And he went after other gods. It says that he built a high place for the god Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. If you know who Molech is, Molech was that pagan god that demanded child sacrifice. So here is Solomon who was walking after God, but late in life he is now turned from that. And he's offering sacrifices, children, to this pagan god, which is really just a rock that was carved into the shape of a thing. And that's what he did. Solomon did not end well in his his reign. And for that, God promised to rip the kingdom from Solomon's son and leave him with only a single tribe of the 12. We're also told that Solomon taxed the people greatly and even required forced labor from them. I say all this to you to give you a description of Solomon so that when we look at this royal psalm, which was probably written for Solomon in his early days, certainly didn't apply to him completely. You're going to see that Solomon does not fulfill this psalm. Solomon did not end well. In fact, within five years of Solomon's death, the kingdom would be divided and never achieve the greatness it had under him. And when we look at Psalm 72, we see, we see a couple things. First, it's a psalm for his coronation, but it's also a description of the messianic kingdom to come. So there's a, a Bible commentator named David Kidner, and he wrote this. He says, as a royal psalm, uh, it prayed for the reigning king and was a strong reminder of his high calling. Yet it exalted this so far beyond uh, the humanly attainable for example, in speaking of his reign as endless, 
as to suggest for its fulfillment no less a person than the Messiah. Not only to Christian thinking, but to Jewish. The Targum at verse 1 adds the word Messiah to the king. And there are rabbinic allusions to the psalm which reveal the same opinion. So what he's saying here is, this is a psalm about the messianic reign. So when we read Psalm 72, we're reading about the final kingdom. Yes, it was for Solomon. But when we look at what says about Solomon in there, what it says about his reign, it can't possibly apply to a human. And if you're wondering what the Targum is, the Targum is actually an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible that was used in the Jewish synagogues. They actually added the word Messiah to the verse 1. Give your king the Messiah, it says, is what they would say. So they believed this. Now, the New Testament nowhere quotes it as messianic, but this picture of the king in his realm is so close to the prophecies of Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 60 through 62 that if those passages are messianic, so is this, says Kidner as well. So in this psalm, we're going to see three things that gives us hope for his coming. Three things. The first one is, verses 1 through 7, the righteous and just rule of the king. We have hope. We look forward to this millennial kingdom, to this messianic kingdom, because the king is righteous and just. Then in verses 8 through 14, we're going to see the extent and compassion in his global rule. And then finally, 15 through 19, the prosperity and blessing his rule will bring to all people. And then finally at the end, there are going to be five lessons that we draw from this psalm. So the psalm begins, of Solomon, this was a song, a psalm written by him, a prayer psalm. And even though I know that our, my translation here uh, says, uh, begins with, give the king your justice, some translations begin with, oh God. And actually the Hebrew begins with that. It begins with, Elohim. Elohim is the divine name of God that embraced all nations and all of creation and all creatures. Yahweh, you see, is the personal name of God. We see Yahweh a lot in scripture. That's the personal name given to those who have a personal relationship. The Jews would call God, would refer to him as Yahweh. The other nations would, would refer to him as Elohim. As believers, we can call him Yahweh as personal God. But this one begins with calling him Elohim. So we see right away, this applies to more than just the Jewish people. This is reaching out already to the nations. And so we're going to see that uh, in this, there are some great um, expectations of this kingdom. And if this were actually even just hyperbole for, for Solomon saying, hey, Solomon, we want you to aim high and go for these things, um, that it, it would be uh, an exaggerated hyperbole because uh, it's almost like saying, we wish that your kingdom, Solomon, would be as good as the Messiah's. And, and that, that's just kind of a ridiculous statement but he begins by making a demand or a strongly worded request. He says, endow the king with justice, verse 1. Now, based on the promise God made to Solomon, this demand is exactly in line with what God promised he would do. God said, I will give you wisdom. I will give you discernment. I will give you those things. And so this is not unusual that, that the psalmist would write, well, then give them to your king. Give him your justice. This is not just justice, but I want God's justice in this. So it's really not a demand to ask God to keep his promises. For example, in James 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We can claim that. We can ask God to give us wisdom according to the promise he made. We're not demanding it of God. We are simply claiming the promise he made to us, that he will give us wisdom if we ask. And Solomon says, you made a promise that you would give me wisdom, and now I'm asking that. Give, give me that justice, your justice. And he wants to, the king to be a just king, a king that thinks and acts both rightly and without prejudice. This is God's justice, pure, 
justice. Justice that sees and knows the truth. Justice that doesn't collapse due to some high-priced lawyer. But true justice where the outcome is the one that should occur. This isn't a justice that said, well, you had your day in court and it didn't work out for you too bad. This is a justice that is concerned with the right outcome, not just proper proceedings. We want a king like that, a king that is just, and you're going to see that this justice is something that, that people want. The second part of the verse continues with, give, us your, give uh, your righteousness to the royal son. It's a two-part request, justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness in scripture, scripture often go together. In Isaiah, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Again, in Isaiah, it says, then the throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. In Isaiah, again, he says, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. In Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. You don't have peace in the land without justice and righteousness. And the psalmist knows that. And the psalmist is, is praying that this new king, as he comes to the throne, would be a just king and a righteous king. And then he says, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And so now we see the psalmist is concerned about those who are normally overlooked. May he judge the poor with justice. Who are the poor? Who are the needy? They are generally the ones without a voice. They're the ones who no one stands up for. They're the ones who in society are overlooked and marginalized. And he, and he says here that may, may the king see that and judge them rightly and with justice. This is the kind of king we want the king that is fair to everyone. And he says this, then let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. And I think this is pointing to the extent of righteousness and justice. You see, one of the uses in scripture for mountains is when it refers to kingdoms or to human governments. So we see this, we see uh, in Psalm 30, King David says, you made my mountain stand strong. That is his reign or his rule. That's his government. God caused it to stand strong. In Isaiah 2, it refers to the coming kingdom as the mountain of the house of the Lord. And again, in Isaiah 41, God describes Judah's enemies as mountains and hills that God will crush. Those are nations. Those are human governments. And Jeremiah refers to Babylon as a destroying mountain. Finally, in Revelation, John describes seven heads are seven mountains. They are also seven kings. Again, human government. So what does that have? What does that mean here? Well, when we look at the passage, it says, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. I think that refers to the mountains are referring to big national governments. Let them bear prosperity or peace to the people. But then the hills represent the local governments, the smaller forms of governments. So this isn't just a righteousness and a justice that will be, you know, for the, for the, the big cities, the, 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 the big nations, but down to everybody in the nation is how far this will extend. And this is what the king will do. He, verse four, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Not only will he defend the poor, those who've been mistreated or those who have, as we said, no voice, no one to, to be their helper, no one to come to their cause, he will deliver their children. 
You see, if the afflicted have no voice, no options, and no recourse, how much less do their children have any hope? If the needy and the poor have no hope, their children are at the absolute bottom. No hope for them. But this king will be their champion. This king will see, this king will know, and this king will rise up. That's the king in the final kingdom. This is who we will serve. And he will not only bring justice, but it says that he will crush the oppressor. Yeah. When he comes, he will deal with those who are guilty. He will deal with those. Now we need to take a little detour, a little off the path detour here. You might be asking yourself, we're talking about the final kingdom. In our eschatological view here, we say this is after Christ's return and Christ has come to the earth and all the wicked have been destroyed. The only people left on earth are, are saved people, are Christians, those who became Christians during the tribulation. That's the only ones left. And then there are those who've come down with Christ now in resurrected bodies who are here. So if we only have people in resurrected bodies who can't sin anymore, and you have people who are saved, where's all this wickedness coming from? Well, number one, just because you're saved, you know, and you're not in a resurrected body, we still have battle with the flesh. We still battle sin. And so people will still sin though they're saved. But moreover, those people are going to have babies. Their babies are going to grow and have babies who are going to have babies. And the earth is going to begin a population expanse of people who are not saved. And so this will rise up. So in this kingdom, even though Christ is ruling on his throne, uh, there will be people uh, who uh, will oppose him. And so why? And, and I've looked at this. And so why would God allow that? How, in fact, I'd ask even, even more, how is it possible that you can be on earth with Jesus physically on the throne in Jerusalem? You can go see him and still choose to reject him. How's that possible? And I think this is God's way of showing us just who we are. And over time, he has given us several situations in which we think, well, if this was only the case, I mean, has anybody here thought, maybe I have, if I was in the garden and it was rich and Eve, <laughs> we'd be all right right now. And God is going to know you wouldn't. Not even then. And then he stood up governments. He stood up human governments. Maybe human governments can restrain sin. And what do we see? They fail. In fact, God has to wipe them out, the flood of Noah. Well, fast forward just to the time of the people of Israel. God gave his law to Moses. They had the book. They had the book of the law. If you do this, you'll be all right. And they still sin. And now we live in the age that we're in, where God has given us, if you're a believer, his Holy Spirit that indwells us, and we still sin. You see, we're, we're kind of without excuse here. So the final, what's the final scenario that we might want to cling to and say, well, if only that were true, if that were true, then, then I wouldn't have sinned. See, God, you're unfair because you didn't give us that chance. And God says, no, here it is. Jesus will physically be on his throne in Jerusalem. You can go see him, and yet you'll choose to reject him and to sin. And God is saying, look, you're without excuse. I've given, I've given mankind every chance, and it just doesn't work. And in verse 5 now, the psalmist will pray, 
May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. So here the psalmist breaks out. He says, okay, we wanted this. We want a king who's just and righteous and, and, and is justice with the poor. He defends the poor, defends the children of the poor. He crushes the oppressor. And now may they fear you. In fact, the fear of the Lord is what Jared is focusing on this weekend. He is teaching them the fear of the Lord and what that means. It's the right kind of fear that we should have for God. It's both enticing and terrifying. At the same time, we're inexplicably drawn to it, to God. And yet we approach with trembling and our knees are knocking together because as we get a glimpse of him, as we begin to understand who he is, we see that he is all powerful and all knowing. And he, he pierces through and he knows everything about us. And that's terrifying. That's what it means to fear the Lord. I'm drawn to him because he's beauty. The beauty of the Lord draws me to himself. The love of God draws me to him. And yet, when I get a glimpse of him, it terrifies me because of who he is. That's what the fear of God is. And he says here in, in, in verse five, may they fear you while the sun endures. And how long is that? As long as Jesus wants it to be. As long as Jesus wants a sun in the sky, it will be there. So as long as that, may they fear God. And it says, as long as the moon and throughout all generations, what a prayer that we would fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says the scriptures. And then in verse six, he says, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. How refreshing is that? It describes an experience that we'll have when Jesus is ruling on the throne. The rain and the showers describe provision of new life and joy to the peoples of the earth. Proverbs 16 says, in the light of the king's face, there is life and his favor is like clouds that bring the spring rain. Blessing and joy and refreshment will accompany Christ's rule on earth. And in the final verse of this section, it describes the blessing of the righteous. The righteous ones will not live in fear. They'll experience prosperity and peace, abundance of peace, until the moon is no more. The kingdom's made for the righteous. And Psalm 92 says, though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. So God wants the righteous to flourish, and this is what we hope for. This, in fact, was the accusation against Job when his friends saw him. When Job's friends came and they saw him suffering so much, they said, well, obviously you're dealing with, you know, you got sin in your life. There's something wrong with you if you're suffering like that because the rule is if you're righteous, you're blessed and you flourish. The wicked suffer, the righteous don't. That's the rule they had. And Job says, no, it's not true. Well, here God is saying, well, in this final kingdom, that will be true. The righteous will flourish. That will be true. There's a restoration of the way it should be when we get to that kingdom. This is one reason we have hope for the blessing and the joy coming in the messianic kingdom. We will have a righteous and a just king. Next, we're going to see the extent and compassion of his global reign. This is a lot of fun. Beginning here in verse 8, it says, May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a global reign of Christ. It begins kind of like what we would expect because in Exodus 23, it says, uh, when God is setting, God says, okay, here's the land that I'm going to give you, Israel. Here's going to be your territory. You have to go conquer it. You have to go take it, but it's going to be yours. And they never do, by the way. They never take all that territory. And it says, let me describe it for you. It will be from the Red Sea to the Philistine Sea. That would be from the Red Sea in the south up to the Mediterranean Sea, what we call it today. And then it will be, it says, 
from the wilderness to the Euphrates River. Did they ever even get close to the Euphrates River? No, not so much. But now it doesn't say that here. It doesn't say from Euphrates to the wilderness. It says from the river, we guess Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. God just changed the rules. This final kingdom, when Jesus is on the throne, it's global. This is a global kingdom. Now he starts by saying, yeah, this was the promise from sea to sea and from the wilderness to the river, but I'm telling you now, it's from the river to the ends of the earth. And it says here that may desert tribes bow down before him. So now those, those nomads, those wandering people out in the desert who move around, yeah, they're part of the kingdom now. They'll bow down before you. And he says here, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. And may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. And so now he's, he's not putting limits on the kingdom. He's not saying it only extends as far as Sheba or only extends as far as Tarshish. He's saying, no, go in those directions. This, I'm not putting a limit on you. I'm telling you how big it is. And where is Tarshish? Well, we're actually not sure here. I mean, there was a Tarshish kind of associated in Spain, possibly also one in England, maybe. Uh, there's one off an island uh, off of uh, Italy, but it doesn't matter. It was kind of the farthest place known. Sheba is, is modern day Yemen, Queen of Sheba. That's where she was from that brought uh, the gifts to, to Solomon. Seba is in Africa. So you can see he's basically saying, your kingdom's going out in all directions. It's going out to the east and to the wilderness there, to the desert tribes. It's going to the southeast, to Sheba. It's going to Seba in the south. And it's going, going westward out to Tarshish. This kingdom is huge. It's global. It's not limited anymore just to this land around Israel. Jesus, King Jesus will be enthroned on earth as king of the world. Did you ever play that game, King of the Hill, as a kid? It's more of a boy's game than a girl's game, I think. But to play King of the Hill, all it took was either a small rise in terrain or an object. It didn't take much. And someone would get up on top of that and declare themselves King of the Hill. And at that declaration, the rules were, knock them off and become the new king. That's it, it was simple that you do that. And that's, what it, that's, that's how you play the game. You knock off the current king to become the new king. And it reminds me of how a friend of mine described the differences between his sons and his daughter. And he said, for the boys, every idea they have becomes a game. Every game will become a competition. And every competition will become a blood sport. <laughs> and that's just the way boys think in this but that's not the way it's going to be with King Jesus on his throne. He will stand alone and unchallenged until the very end. It says here in Revelation, it says, when the thousand years are ended, the end of the kingdom, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. So you can tell the population of the earth has grown in this thousand years and they will march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Looks like a real battle brewing, except the next part. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Done. When King Jesus is on the throne, there's no battle. Jesus fights it. He takes them out. And it says, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When Jesus is on his throne, nobody's coming to take it from him. He's permanently enthroned. This is the kingdom that we're looking at. We see that his enemies, it says, will lick the dust. What does that mean? Well, that should draw us back to Genesis, to the curse on the serpent at the fall. It says, 
God is cursing the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Eating dust was a punishment. It was defeat. Micah, the prophet, also describes what will happen to God's enemies. He says, nations will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. So not only is this kingdom going to be global, but it will be militarily powerful as well. No one can touch King Jesus. It's going to be economically strong. We see that. And politically strong. Economically, we see people bringing tribute to Jesus. They bring gifts from all across the world. And then in verse 11, it says, May all the kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. This is a complete rule, not just geography-wise, but economically, militarily, politically. Jesus rules from, th from his throne. That's what we can look forward to. That's a hope that we have. That's part of our blessed hope that one day Jesus will rule like that. And now we get to the last part here, verses 15 through 19. And the final reason given here for the hope that we have in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to establish his kingdom on earth is the prosperity and blessing he will bring under his reign. In this section, the psalmist is going to pray for three things. Number one, he's going to say, don't let this reign end. Don't let his kingdom end is one of his prayers. And then he prays for security and economic thriving. And finally, he, he prays for the extension of the king's great prosperity to all areas. So he begins in verse 15. He says, Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. This is not tribute that's given to him here. Uh, the gold of Sheba Gold being given to Jesus. Does that draw your mind to anything? When the infant Jesus was born, he was being recognized as king. And the magi from the east came and they brought gifts. And one of the gifts they brought to him was gold. Why? Gold is fitting for a king. Gold was the most precious kind of the rarest thing they could bring to show how special, how royal the king is. They bring him gold to recognize his rule over them. And then it says that they will, prayer will be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. And I wondered about this. I said, wow, are we going to need to pray for Jesus on his throne? What, are we, what, would we, what would we pray for while he's on his throne? I mean, what, what does he need from God the Father, God the Spirit? And what I, what I think we see here in, in this verse is that what we would pray for him is what we're going to see at the end of this chapter. And that is that his glory would fill the whole earth. We want people to see and to know and to worship Jesus. We would pray, Jesus, may your kingdom last forever and, and may the glory of your name, the beauty of your name go out to all the world. May they recognize you for who you are. Those are the types of prayers we would pray for Jesus in this case. We're not praying for him because he's in need of anything. We're praying that he would be expanded even more because we are enthralled with who he is. That's why people bring the gold to him. That's why they, they pray for him. That's why they bless him. They praise him. They praise him for his righteousness, for his justice, for the peace that he brought upon the land, for the abundance that he brought. They praise him for that. And, and that's what he's saying here, that people are going to come and they're going to be so enthralled with Christ 
that they'll be praying these things and blessing him with these praises. And then verse 16, may there be an abundance of corn in the land. On the tops of mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. We're talking here about abundance of crops. And, and he goes even further. He's like, this isn't just about farmland producing good grain or good corn. You see, there, there are at least two places that crops don't normally grow and prosper. One of them is on mountaintops. The second one's my garden, but he doesn't talk about that here. He's talking about the mountaintops. And he says, may there be an abundance of, lore, of corn in the land and on the tops of mountains may it wave. In the place that crops don't normally grow, may there be an abundance of crops. How abundant? But he compares it to Lebanon. Lebanon was known for their tall cedar trees. So you know how the wind whistles through the, the great cedars of Lebanon and you hear the wind whistling through it. May the wind whistle through the stalks of corn, so much so that there's so much abundance in the land. Back in early America, over uh, about late 1700s, early 1800s, the farming in the Northeast had taken a toll on the land and it was just rocky soil. They didn't rotate crops, they just over farmed it. So in the late 1700s, early 1800s, people began migrating from the Northeast out to Ohio and Kentucky because the rumor there was, the promise was that the corn in Ohio grew to be 10 feet tall. That was the promise. And so people went. They packed up everything they could fit into a Conestoga wagon, sold the rest of it, and they moved westward. In the Messianic kingdom, in Christ's kingdom, crops will grow everywhere. There will be no need to move to Ohio when Christ is reigning on the throne. So, and finally, cities will not be in want. Cities can grow and flourish because of all the food produced outside of the city. And the people will be as many as grass of the field and blossom in prosperity. This is the coming kingdom. And in verse 17, all believers cry out for the name of Jesus to endure forever, for his fame to endure as long as the sun. Jesus from his throne will bless the people and the people will turn around and bless him. This is the kingdom. This is what awaits us. This is the hope we have. So that when we look around in times like this, we don't become discouraged. Finally, the last verses 18 and 19 are a doxology. Verses 18 and 19 not only close out this psalm, but they actually close out book two of the psalms. You see, the Holy Spirit in his wisdom not only enabled human authors to write the psalms, but then to gather them into what are known as five books. So the psalms are not just thrown into the scripture in any random order. There's a purpose, there's an order to them. And they're gathered together. And each book, book one, goes from chapter one through verse, I'm sorry, through chapter 41, Book two from 42 to 72, then 73 to 89, 90 to 106, and 107 to the end. But every book ends with the doxology. And this is the doxology we have. And it says, may his name endure forever. I'm sorry, verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. A double amen. That points to the confidence and the assurance that we have that God will accomplish what the psalmist has requested. This is coming. We can have assurance and confidence. Then verse 20 brings to a close. And in light of the great king to come, David isn't even given a title. And I think David would agree. This is just David. It's not a slight. But we just finished talking about the greatest king ever, the greatest kingdom ever, 
he'll rule the entire earth and bring prosperity and peace and righteousness and justice and compassion and blessing to the whole world. David was good. He wasn't that good. So the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So here are five lessons that we, I think that we can glean from this psalm. And I adapted them from Roy Gingrich's commentary on this. I liked what he said. Number one, the earth has a glorious future. We have no, near, no need to fear the future. The earth will be what it once was intended to be prior to sin entering the world. We're talking about getting back to Garden of Eden conditions. Have you ever wanted to be like in the Garden of Eden? Well, we're going to see that again on earth. Number two, peace on earth will one day be real. All right? This is the genuine swords beaten into plowshares, wolves dwelling with lambs, and a little child leading them, peace. This is peace the way God intended. This is real peace, not just an absence of conflict but the way God intended his creation to be. Number three, the poor and the downtrodden will receive justice. Many times they cry out, when, oh God, when are you going to bring justice? No one will be able to take advantage of the poor or the needy just because they're poor. Everyone will have an advocate who sees all and knows all and judges rightly. Number four, the righteous will flourish. Again, the hope that the people have had. If I do what God says, if I live the righteous life, I should prosper and flourish. That isn't always true today. That's still the best way to live. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, that's how Solomon would say that. Hey, what do we learn from all this? Well, still the best thing to do is obey God, fear God, and obey his commands. But the righteous will flourish. This isn't promising that everyone will be a billionaire, but grain and livestock will increase. No more hunger, no more need. And then number five, the curse on this earth will one day be lifted. The ground itself will behave like it was supposed to prior to the fall in the garden. No more by the sweat of your brow will you work in the fields to produce your food, but they'll produce fruits and vegetables and grain in abundance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the marvelous truths in it. Help us to hold to this great hope, the return and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. For now we are in this world, but not of it. So help us to be righteous and just. Give us compassion and kindness. We ask not for prosperity or abundance, but that the name of Jesus would be exalted and the whole earth would be filled with his glory. We ask this for his name's sake, and we pray this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.